Hey, let's dismiss our uh, middle schoolers to class now. Our middle schoolers. Are they already gone? Okay, and we're going to dismiss this wonderful little group of kid kiddos right up front here. There's the future Miss America pageant walking out right there. There they go. And we're going to turn in our Bibles tonight to the book of Isaiah. Does anybody need a Bible? Raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. We got a few that need one. The book of Isaiah. Hey, on Sunday night, we're teaching through the Bible. Not all in one Sunday night, but we're spreading it out over several years. And tonight, we're in Isaiah chapter Chapter 10, we're going to cover chapters 10 through 12. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles there, Isaiah chapter 10. We've got three chapters tonight. We're going to kind of go through them thoroughly. We're going to ask the Lord to bless us, and we're going to glean some things from tonight's text. Isaiah chapter 10. Anybody else need a Bible? If you'll raise your hand, we'll get you one. Anybody else? We got some last minute, last minute hand raisers over there. Anybody else? While well, we put everything on pause, so you finally dawns on you, you don't have a Bible. Look down in your lap right now. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your great love for us, and we pray tonight, Lord, that you'll you'll work in our hearts. Lord, we also want to pray tonight for kids camp starting up next week. Lord, we pray for Pastor James and Anna and all the guys that are going down to kids' camp. We pray for a safe bus trip tomorrow. Lord, we pray that all the repairs have been made and uh, things are safe and that it's going to be a good trip for them. Get them down there safely, Lord. Bless them while they're there. Draw them closer to Jesus, Lord. Just fill their hearts with your love. Lord, remind them that you care for them. Lord, teach them some truths about you and about life during this coming week. We pray you'll bless us with a wonderful kids' camp. You'll bless all the workers that go. Lord, that you'll bring the kids back just more on fire for Jesus Christ. Lord, bless this week. We love you, Lord. And we ask you to bless our Bible study now. In Jesus' name, amen. From 729 to 609 B.C., roughly a period of about 120 years, there existed one superpower among the nations. The Assyrian Empire ruled the world. You see, for the first time in history, in the history of civilization, one nation had the might and the ambition and the administrative prowess to reduce the kingdoms of the world into a single empire with an Assyrian in charge. The Assyrian shadow covered all of Mesopotamia. The ports of Phoenicia, the trade routes through Damascus, the hills of Samaria, all lay under the sway of the Assyrian. Damascus fell to Assyria in 732 BC. Israel and its capital of Samaria was conquered by the Assyrian troops in 722 BC. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, they faced Assyria's troops just outside the walls of the southern capital of Judah. Though God never condoned Assyria's ruthlessness, and though certainly God hated the Assyrians' idols, interestingly, 
God still used this nation to judge other nations. You see, Assyria was a tool in the hand of God. And here's a principle that we all need to know. Just because God uses you doesn't mean that he's pleased with your motives and approves of your methods. Say a sick saint stumbles into a church meeting seeking God's healing. There's a pompous pastor who prances across the stage. He's slapping people on the head. He's employing all kinds of gimmicks, grabbing the spotlight, pretending to be the anointed of God. Did you know that despite the pastor, God will hear that humble, believing cry from that humble heart, and he might even use that prideful, greedy pastor to convey his help and healing. But that doesn't let the pastor off the hook for his attitude and for his actions. You see, just because God uses you doesn't mean you're granted an exemption from his standards. This past week, a nurse took the sutures out of my injured thumb. It was kind of painful. Those sutures had gotten real comfortable in my wound. And she started plucking and pulling those stitches out of my thumb. I thought I was going to go through the roof. She opened up this sterile package that contained some scissors and some tweezers. These were her tools. And yet once she got the sutures out of my hand, guess what she did with the tools? She chunked them. She threw them away. It's interesting. She didn't have a sentimental attachment to those tools. They were just there for a purpose. Likewise, just because we're God's tool doesn't mean he's necessarily pleased with us. God can use anybody. Remember, God used a donkey to speak to Balaam. God can use even a band of cutthroat, bloodthirsty Assyrians. You see, here's what happens in tonight's chapters. God uses the Assyrians to judge Damascus and Samaria, but then he turns around and he judges Assyria. He judges the tool he's used to judge. This is such a needed lesson. The tools that do the work of God are still subject to the will of God. Everyone involved in God's service should take heed. Now, Isaiah 10 verse 5 is where we pick up tonight. Isaiah cries out, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. This is fascinating language. God calls Assyria the rod of my anger. Assyria was one of the most violent, violent armies to ever roam the earth. Haley's Bible handbook describes the Assyrians' tactics. Listen carefully. He says, most nations were robber nations. The Assyrians were worst of all. They built their state on the loot of others. They practiced cruelty. They skinned prisoners alive or cut off their hands, feet, noses, or ears. They put out their eyes. They pulled out their tongues. And they made mounds of human skulls all to inspire terror. I just missed cutting off my thumb. And that was painful enough for me. I can't imagine someone cutting off a hand, or plucking out an eye, or ripping out a tongue. 
Assyria would use these barbarous acts in order to scare the nations into intimidation and into submission. And yet, here's the interesting thing. God calls these Assyrian troops the rod of my anger. Apparently, they reflected just how upset he was over the sin of the people. He calls them his indignation. This is such a mystery. You know, violence and evil were never God's will. Man brought them into the world. But now that man has, it's interesting, God isn't afraid to use them to accomplish his purposes. God uses evil without ever condoning it or acquitting its perpetrators. In fact, what man meant for evil, God will often turn around and use for good. In the end, this is what happens to Satan. You know, Satan ends up accomplishing God's purposes. Someone once called Satan God's stooge. Martin Luther used to call him God's ape. He actually ends up doing the bidding of God. The ultimate example of all of this is how the end of the age takes place. Another world ruler called the Antichrist rises up to oppose all that's good and godly. And yet God will use this Antichrist to exact judgment on the wicked world. You know, it's interesting that Isaiah and a few other Old Testament prophets refer to this Antichrist by an interesting name. He calls him the Assyrian. The last world-governing emperor is named after the first. In fact, parts of Isaiah have an immediate fulfillment, but other parts have a future fulfillment. Some of the passages speak of Assyria's king, while other passages speak of this future Assyrian, this man we call the Antichrist. And some passages speak of both. Let me put it to you like this. Once a new bartender came to town. His predecessor warned him before he left that if he ever heard Big John is a-coming, he needed to run for his life. Well, one day, this cowhand, he rushes into the saloon and he's screaming, Big John's a-coming! Big John's a-coming! He knocks over the bartender trying to escape. And when the barkeep gets to his feet, he looks up and lo and behold, there is the biggest burliest man he has ever seen riding on the back of a buffalo using a rattlesnake as a whip. This guy knocks over the tables. He slams his fist down on the counter. It breaks in two. He barks at the barkeep, give me a sarsaparilla. The barkeep slides a bottle down the bar. He grabs it. He breaks it off, the cap off with his teeth. He guzzles it in one gulp. He smashes the bottle over his forehead, and then he walks out of the saloon. Well, the bartender says, wait a minute, don't you want another drink? And the man says, nope, I don't have time. Big John is a coming. (laughs) Well, you see, Isaiah is talking about this big bad man like Big John. At times, he's talking about the local Assyrian. But at other times, he's talking about the future Assyrian, the one that's still to come. Well, Isaiah continues here in verse 6. He says, I will send him against an ungodly nation. And against the people of my wrath, I will give him charge to seize the spoil to take the prey. Remember those words, to seize the spoil to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. This is a play on words Isaiah is using here. 
If, if you recall chapter 8, verse 1, Isaiah gave a prophetic name to his son. And, and you know, you don't really want to be the son of a prophet. Because you usually get stuck with a really strange name. Isaiah named his son Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. You think Sandy's a tough name for a boy? Try going to school on the first day of class. Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Yeah, I'm here. That's rough. You know what it means, though? We, we just got its definition right here in this verse. It means seize the spoil, take the prey. Isaiah named his son. God was saying that he would use the Assyrian siege to vent his wrath on these wicked nations. He goes on, yet he, meaning the Assyrian, does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. Now here's the irony. God is going to use the Assyrian as his tool. But this is a truth that the Assyrian himself doesn't realize and doesn't recognize. And I hope you know this is the plight of the nations today. Every week, news breaks that fulfills the Bible's ancient prophecies. And yet none of the current players will admit the obvious, that they're part of this plan. Everybody thinks they're acting independently of themselves. Everybody thinks that that they're acting on their own accord. Whereas in reality, God is aligning the nations according to his scenario. Even this latest Middle East event, it has some last day ramifications. You're aware of this conflict that's erupted between Israel and Turkey over the flotilla that the Turks tried to send into Gaza. Back in early June, Israeli commandos, they forcibly boarded a Turkish boat. For years, Turkey has had peaceful intentions toward Israel. But if this current breach widens, it may just send Turkey into the arms of Israel's enemies. And many Bible commentators have been anticipating this. They see Turkey as one of Israel's future invaders in Ezekiel chapter 39. Things are happening. Again, the scenario is getting lined up for the end times. Here's Isaiah's point. A sovereign God uses the nations without either their consent or their cooperation. Mighty nations are merely a pawn in the plan of God. He goes on, he says in verse 8, for he says, Are not my princes altogether kings? The word princes means vassals. And here he's talking about these puppet rulers throughout the empire. These are the nations that Assyria has routed, but are paying tribute back to their conquerors. He mentions a few of them. Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamoth like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? All these nations had been defeated by the Assyrians. He says, as my hand has found the nations or the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Notice this, Isaiah, I'm sorry, the Assyrians, they were the tool that God used to judge Samaria for its idolatry. But Samaria's idolatry wasn't as bad as the Assyrians. Here, Assyria boasts that her idols excelled even those of the Hebrews. He goes on, he says, As I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not do also to Jerusalem and her idols? Understand this king of Assyria. He was a pluralist. He believed that all religions were created equal. A lot of people believe that today, don't they? He believed that all nations basically served their own idols. 
He never thought that he might invade a nation who served the one true, living, sovereign, almighty God. Didn't figure on that. He figured he would cut down Jerusalem's idols just as he'd done Samaria's idols. The problem was is that Jerusalem didn't worship idols. The northern kingdom had been given over to idols, but the southern kingdom had remained faithful to Yahweh, to the true God. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, they had remained faithful to God, and God would come to their defense against the Assyrian. He goes on, Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. And the glory of his haughty looks. You see, the Assyrian invasion had been a wake-up call. But unlike Samaria, it was God's will to defend Jerusalem and to humble the Assyrian. He says, for he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Also I have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries. So I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. See, Assyria's goal was a single global empire and economy. Thus, they had abolished national borders and national treasuries. It's interesting, this will also be the goal of the Assyrian, of the end times, the Antichrist. He too will seek to establish a one-world government and economy. Again, Assyria boasts, My hand has found like a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathers eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth. And there was no one who moved his wing nor opened his mouth with even a peep. You ever heard the expression, not a peep out of you? You get that from the Bible, from Isaiah. Up until Assyria's invasion of Judah, no nation had even mounted a mild resistance. They had all surrendered without a peep. That's about to come to an end. Because Assyria is about to come to the one true God in his capital of Jerusalem. He goes on, Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as if a shaft could lift up as it were not wood. You see, the problem is the Assyrian, he had taken credit for his victories. He didn't acknowledge that God had been using him, that he had simply been an axe in the hand of God. No, he thought he was the one who was dictating these defeats and orchestrating these victories. The Assyrian had robbed God of his glory. The Assyrian had been nothing more than Yahweh's axe. Corey Ten Boone used to tell the story of the woodpecker that was pounding away at the huge oak tree. One day a lightning bolt split through the sky and it hit the tree and split the tree right down the middle. The woodpecker, though, turned and went away bragging about the power of his beak. You see, here's the folly of proud people. There is no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. Man takes for himself glory that's only to the Lord. God gives us the air we breathe in our next breath. We could do nothing if he did not will it. Assyria here is like an inflated balloon that's about to get popped. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness among his fat ones. (laughs) Now, God's not advocating a new diet for his people here. 
Some of us fat ones might view a little leanness as a blessing. God, though, is, is more proposing an economic crash. That's what's about to happen. Leanness is about to come. And under his glory, he will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. So the light of Israel will be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. Here's a picture of messianic judgment. Notice these terms. The light of Israel, the holy one. These are names for the Messiah. And in the end, Jesus is the one who will judge that future Assyrian when he returns to earth. You remember Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that Jesus will destroy the Antichrist, quote, with the breath of his mouth. It's just going to take one puff from Jesus. He will destroy him from, with the brightness of his coming, one flash of his glory. That's all it's going to take. Here's a clue to what John the Baptist meant when he said that Jesus would come baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What fire? Well, here Isaiah talks about the fires of judgment. He goes on, and it will consume the glory of his forest and his fruitful field, both soul and body. And they will be as when a sick man wastes away. Then the rest of the trees of his forest will be so few in number that a child may write them. The vast Assyrian army starts out as a forest. Its soldiers are as numerous as trees. In the end, it'll be a barren hill. Ravaged by fire, there'll be nothing left. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. You see, this had always been Israel and Judah's problem. They tried to strike alliances with whoever was in power at the time rather than put their trust in God. And isn't this Israel's dilemma today? Oh my, you feel sorry for the, for the Israelis. They look to the UN Accords. They trust in Camp David. They look to the Oslo Treaties. And it goes on and on, looking to whoever's in power for their help. It seems that even this new U.S. government may end up betraying Israel. Who can she trust? She needs to trust in God. This is her hope. Verse 21, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. You see, God used Assyria to judge Israel, but not completely. God always leaves a remnant of his people. There are always heirs to his promises. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt for yet a very little while and the indignation will cease as will my anger in their destruction. God is going to destroy Assyria. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. As his rod was on the sea, so will he lift it up in the manner of Egypt. 
God is going to destroy the Assyrians as he did the Egyptians. Now you remember, Moses raised his rod. And what happened to the Egyptian army? The waters closed over them and they drowned in the surf. Well, likewise, in one bold stroke, the entire Assyrian army is going to perish. This is what we read about last week. The Emmanuel Massacre. Remember what we talked about? You remember the story back in 2 Kings. In one night, Emmanuel, the angel of the Lord, came in the middle of the night. And he drew his sword and he cut down in that one night 185,000 Assyrian troops. It's the best Bible story you've never heard of. It's an awesome story. Isaiah prayed. King Hezekiah prayed. And God sent the angel of the Lord. He called him Emmanuel. And he slaughtered the Assyrians outside the walls of Jerusalem. And this is why it was so stunning For Joseph and for Mary, when they heard the angel say that Mary's baby would be named Emmanuel. Because it hit them. This child in our bassinet, he's been here before. He's fought battles. He's waged wars. This baby is Emmanuel. Well, it shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. It literally reads the anointed one, which again is a reference to the Messiah. Jesus or Emmanuel will deliver Judah. Now, the remainder of the chapter is Isaiah's play-by-play of Assyria's invasion into Judah toward Jerusalem. They come from the north. They come down into Judah, and they close in on Jerusalem. He has come to Aath. This city was about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. They're going to track with them now. He has passed Migron. At Michmash, he has attended to his equipment. Now, Michmash was about seven and a half miles north of Jerusalem, and so he's made some ground. He's covered about 20 miles, the Assyrian moving south. His army is marching at a furious pace. He's closing in on Jerusalem. They have gone along the ridge. They have taken up lodging at Geba. Ramah is afraid. Geba and Ramah were about six miles north of Jerusalem, so he's closing in. Gibeah of Saul has fled four miles north of Jerusalem. He's moving closer. Lift up your voice, O daughter of Galim. Cause it to be heard as far as Laish, O poor Anathoth. Anathoth was famous because it was the hometown of Jeremiah. It was only about three miles outside the northern wall. So again, he's getting closer. Madmanah has fled. Madmanah was the site of a garbage dump that was used by the city of Jerusalem. So now he's getting real close. He's in the suburbs, the outskirts. The inhabitants of Gebim seek refuge. This was the site of a cistern, a water reservoir that was used by the city of Jerusalem. Now he's right outside the northern walls, maybe one, two miles perhaps outside the city. Jerusalem is now within sight. As yet he will remain at Nob that day. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Now he's in Jerusalem. In fact, Nob was one of the five mountains that made up Jerusalem. It was the northernmost mountain. Today, Nob is called Mount Scopus. There we go. That's looking at Mount Scopus. The word Scopus, what does it mean? Scope. 
to look, to spy, to see. In the early modern wars, it served as the lookout that allowed the Israelis to look out and see what the Arabs were doing further east. It's a vantage point. It's a lookout. According to our text, this was the northern high ground that the Assyrian used to look out over the city of Jerusalem. And we're told he stood there and he shook his fist at Jerusalem. The future Assyrian will likewise have that same animosity toward Jerusalem. The Antichrist will come to the same hill and shake his fist over the city of God. But again, the Lord will come to Jerusalem's rescue, we're told. Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. And who is the Lord who lops off Assyria like a tree limb? Again, Isaiah 7 through 9 identified him as Emmanuel, the name that the angel used to identify Jesus. Jesus cut down the Assyrian of old, and Jesus is the one who will lop off the future Assyrian yet to come. I love the imagery here that Isaiah uses for the fall of this mighty kingdom, the Assyrians. It's like the taking down of a huge tree. Now recently I had Wayne over at the house to remove some trees behind my house. And and when these guys started going up in these trees and started taking these trees down... I just get blown away by that. I just sat on my deck and I watched them. Felt like I needed to buy a ticket. It was amazing what these guys do. Here's what happens. First, the climber straps on his gear, his spikes and all, and he starts heading up this tree. And as he goes, he's lopping off limbs all the way up this tree. Limbs are just falling left and right. All that's left, when he gets to the top, all that's left is him and this big naked piece of wood. And then he comes down. And here's what he does. He slides down about every five feet and he cuts off a log and pushes it over. And so you're sitting there on the porch and these logs start hitting the ground. Boom. (laughs) And you just start vibrating, you know. And all the way down, he's chopping these logs down. These five-foot logs are coming down and bouncing off the ground. It, It shakes the house. It's amazing that what was so mighty and so dominant It's suddenly no more. You're sitting there and all that's left now of this huge tree is just this little nub, this little stump in the ground. Well, this is what happened to the Assyria. This is what happened to this mighty empire. And this is what Jesus will do to the kingdoms of this world when he returns. Jesus is going to clear the ground. He's going to level things out. Jesus is going to reduce the kingdoms of this world to nothing. And then he's going to establish his kingdom on the earth. Well, chapter 11 picks up where Isaiah 10 closes with God's deliverer, Emmanuel. In fact, verse 1 gives him another name. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David a forever king who would come from his loins and who would sit on a forever throne and would rule over a forever kingdom. Remember that. That's the Davidic covenant. A forever king on a forever throne ruling a forever kingdom. When appointed, these Hebrew kings, they were always anointed with oil. 
Thus, the special king from David's family tree would come to be known as the anointed one. Remember that phrase, anointed one. In Hebrew, it gets translated Messiah. In Greek, it gets translated Christos. In English, it's Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the branch that grows from David's family's tree. This eternal king who will rule an eternal kingdom and sit on an eternal throne. Notice he was the stem of Jesse. David's father was Jesse. And of course Jesus grows from this family tree that was his lineage. And this is why the gospels, Matthew and Luke, they start out with what we think are those boring genealogies. And we open up our Bible. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm making a commitment this year. I'm going to read through my Bible. And then we make the mistake of starting in Matthew. And we get about halfway through those genealogies and say, man, I just can't do this anymore. What in the world are all these begats here for? Well, they're there for a very important reason. Those ancestries are vital because they trace Jesus' pedigree back to the promises that God made to David and that he made to Abraham. It's interesting, in 70 AD, when the Romans burned down the Jewish temple, those registries and those genealogies were burned with the temple. Thus, no one born after 70 AD could possibly be the Messiah because there's no way that they could prove their ancestry and their pedigree. Why did God allow those records to go up in smoke? It's because those ancestries were no longer needed. Jesus had already come. The promised Messiah was already here and his genealogy had already been established. Today, the only person with the credentials to be the Messiah is Jesus Christ. Well, verse 2 is an important messianic prophecy. He says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now this verse is important because it sheds light on another verse. Revelation chapter 1 verses 4 and 5, here's what they tell us. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ. Notice this. Revelation begins with a greeting from the Trinity. Now we know about the Trinity. God exists. There's one God, but he exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here in Revelation, the Father greets us. Jesus greets us. And the seven spirits greet us. And this becomes confusing. Because the Trinity is three yet one. Not nine yet one. There's one Holy Spirit, not seven Holy Spirits. Yet John refers to him as the seven spirits who are before the throne. You see, this is where Isaiah 11 verse 2 helps us. This gives us the answer. Isaiah is speaking of one spirit, but this one Holy Spirit reveals himself here in seven ways. Notice he is the spirit, one, of the Lord, two, of wisdom, three, of understanding, four, of counsel, five of might, six of knowledge, and seven of the fear of the Lord. Notice one spirit, but seven manifestations. 
It's interesting, the menorah, or Israel's famous lampstand, had seven branches. One candle stood on a vertical shaft. The other six candles were at the ends of the three loops of the two can- with, with two candles on each end. This is Isaiah's configuration. Here he's, he's kind of giving us a verbal menorah. He is the spirit of the Lord. That's that vertical shaft. But then he has three couplets that follow. You know, the spirit of, of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. But he is the one Lord. Picture of the menorah. Now notice the first description that Isaiah gives to the Holy Spirit. He calls him the Spirit of the Lord. And this is so fitting. Because it is the Holy Spirit's job to reveal the Lord Jesus. In John 15 verse 26, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. This is why there are two ways to recognize the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. First of all, he will never contradict the Bible. How can he since he authored it? He will never violate the nature of Jesus. Why? Because he is the spirit of Jesus. His job is to testify of Jesus. This is why the Holy Spirit will always speak and always act in harmony with the written word, your Bible, and the living word, the nature of Jesus. That's how you know you're being led by the Holy Spirit. Does it fit the nature of Jesus? And does it fit the written word of God? This is also why there are some charismatic churches today. They're so preoccupied with the Holy Spirit to the exclusion of Jesus. They even claim to be spirit-led, but you know what? They're probably not. You know why I can say so? Because if they were spirit-led, they'd be preoccupied with Jesus. Because the Spirit's job is to testify of Jesus. He is the Spirit of the Lord. In addition, the Spirit supplies us with wisdom and understanding. And oh, how we need both. Once there was a man, he was suffering from a ringing in his ears and bulging eyes. They looked as if they were going to pop out of their sockets. I mean, they were bulging. And so this guy, he went and he sought some medical attention. The first doctor did a tonsillectomy on him. Didn't help. The second doctor pulled out all his teeth. Still didn't help. The third doctor examined him and said, man, I don't know what's wrong with you, but it looks like to me you're about gone. You've got three months to live, friend. Get your, get your life into order. As a matter of fact, you might as well just go out and enjoy the little bit of life you got left. you just got three months. So here's what the guy did. He went out and he ran up all his credit cards, entertainment, cars, houses, even clothes. In fact, one of the things that he, he really wanted, he'd always wanted to wear these tailored shirts. That was his thing. He wanted to look good. And so he, he decided, well, I've only got three months to live. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my wardrobe together. And so he went out and he hired a tailor. Wanted all tailored shirts. And so the tailor's measuring him, and he calls out. He says, 35 sleeve, 16 collar. The man interrupted him. He said, wait a minute, I don't wear a 16 collar. The tailor said, oh, yes, you do. The man shot back, no, I've always worn a 15 collar. The tailor turns to him, and he says, buddy, I'm warning you. If you keep wearing 15 collar, your eyes are going to pop out and you're going to have ringing in your ears. You know, a little bit of wisdom and a little bit of understanding can really go a long way. Discernment can improve the quality of a person's life. And you know what? The Holy Spirit can help us here. 
He provides us practical wisdom for life. And he provides us insight into the scripture. Note too, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of counsel and might. Remember in Isaiah 9 verse 6, Jesus is also called our wonderful counselor. Obviously, every believer has two counselors. Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And yet, this seems to be today's hidden, untapped truth. I mean, did you know there are more professional psychologists in the United States than librarians, than firefighters, than mail carriers? Did you know that professional counselors outnumber dentists and pharmacists combined two to one? Did you know that over half the psychologists in the world live in the United States? Yet all too often, the help they give us is minimal. In some cases, it's even destructive. Recently, I heard of the difference between a neurotic, a psychotic, and a psychiatrist. Neurotics build air castles. Psychotics live in them, and psychiatrists collect rent from both. I'm not suggesting that a good biblical counselor can't be a benefit, but before you go spending all your money, make two appointments first, with the Word of God and with the Spirit of God. Those are our two counselors. Give Jesus and the Holy Spirit an opportunity to be your counselor, and you'll be glad. Well, finally, notice the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Where did we get this idea that the Holy Spirit was like a soft feathered pillar? pillow or or that he gave us warm goosebumps or or that the holy spirit gave us the tingling sensation where do we get those ideas they're not biblical try to find those descriptions in the bible and you'll strike out no the holy spirit strikes fear in our hearts he is the spirit of the fear of the lord he impresses on us the seriousness and the weightiness of god The Spirit reminds us that God is not someone with whom you trifle or play. That God is holy. There was no one like him. That he deserves our utmost respect and reverence. Nowhere does the Bible say that the Holy Spirit teaches us to bark or laugh or limp or go limp, fall out. No, the Holy Spirit teaches us to fear the Lord. Well, verse 3 goes on. His delight is in the fear of the Lord And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. Unlike human counselors, God's spirit never makes superficial or prejudicial judgments. He sees to the thoughts and intents of the heart. He says, thus with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Again, I quoted it earlier, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Jesus will destroy the Antichrist, the man of sin, with the breath of his mouth. Jesus will rule the world, but he won't get elected by popular vote. He's going to seize the throne by force. Psalm 2 says that the lover of our souls will rule the world with a rod of iron. You don't want to trifle with Jesus. Verse 5 tells us, righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Notice this, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, the hostilities between animals and man, as well as nature's natural enemies, 
that hostility will end. And a beautiful rest and peace will fill the earth. He says, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. The cow and the bear. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. This is a description of what life is going to be like on earth when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom. All creation is going to exist in this perfect harmony. A child will stick his his hand next to a cobra's face. But the snake won't strike. You know, Revelation 20 mentions the duration of this kingdom age. It's going to last for a thousand years. And Jesus will remove the instinctual aggression that God instilled in the animals after the flood. You remember, in the post-flood world, God added meat to man's diet. Man suddenly became a predator. So to even the score, he placed the fear of man in the heart of the animals. It was a survival mechanism for the animals. It was so Noah just couldn't walk up and say, here little Bambi, here little Bambi, and then boom, with a 12-gauge shotgun. Yet in the kingdom age, this hostility between man and the animals, it's going to come to an end, and a harmony is going to fill the earth. A baby's going to crawl next to a pit bull, and they're going to cuddle up together when you find them. He says, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a glorious vision. Everywhere you go, everywhere you, everyone you meet, every conversation, people will be talking about God. Everyone will know him. Once there was a little girl who prayed that God would fill her with the Holy Spirit. She prayed, Lord, I can't hold very much, but I can run over a lot. That's what life will be like when everyone knows the Lord. We'll all be cups sloshing over. Verse 10, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. Notice the family insignia of the Jews is the root of Jesse. Yet it will become the banner for the Gentiles. We'll camp under this flag Jesus will be our identity, our protection, our rallying point. You know, I love it when people come up and ask me for my sign. What's your sign? Well, they're expecting me to say some sign of the zodiac. But I like to tell them, my sign is the cross. The cross of Jesus is my sign. I'm not a Capricorn or Sagittarius. I'm a Christian. Jesus is my banner. He's my sign. He's my insignia. He's my flag. It's to him I pledge allegiance. When I see him above me, I get stirred and emotional and patriotic. Verse 11, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. Now listen to this prophecy because you have seen it fulfilled in your day. He will recover again the second time the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamoth and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel 
and gathered together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. When Jesus reigns, Israel will be regathered to their ancient homeland. This is one of the three parts to the new covenant. We've talked about this. This was the covenant that Jesus instituted at the Last Supper and that he ratified on the cross. This was the promise he made to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And here's the three parts of the new covenant. Israel would return to the land. Their hearts would be regenerated. And Jesus would reestablish his kingdom. It's interesting that here Isaiah speaks of the second time God recovers his people and brings them back to the land. The first time this happened was in 535 B.C. In the years following the Jews when they returned from Babylon. When the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the Jews again were dispersed to the four corners of the earth. And for the last 1,900 years, the Hebrews have lived dispersed, scattered. It's called the diaspora or the dispersion. That is until modern times. Beginning with the Zionist movement in the 1800s, escalating with the birth of the modern state of Israel, and now with the recent wave of Russian Jews, we are seeing the fulfillment of of Isaiah's prophecy in these verses we've just read. Jews are returning to the land God gave them the second time. Not the third time, not the tenth time, but the second time, Isaiah said, and we're seeing it happen in our day. In 1840, only 5,000 Jews lived in Jerusalem. In 1948, there were 84,000 Jews. Today, the Jewish population of Jerusalem has grown to 570,000. In 1948, 650,000 Jews lived within the borders of Israel. In 1982, that number had swelled to 3.2 million. Today, almost 6 million Jews now live in the land of their forefathers. The same number, by the way, that died in the Holocaust have now returned to their homeland of Israel. Our generation has seen biblical prophecy fulfilled before our very eyes. Isaiah predicted, for a second time, God has brought back his people Israel. Now, verse 13 tells us also the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Finally, there'll be unity even among the Jews. Israelis will live in peace. But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab and the people of Ammon shall obey them. This looks forward to the day when Israel will return to the land as conquering heroes. They'll come home in triumph over their enemies. This happens when Jesus returns. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt or the Gulf of Aqaba. With his mighty wind, he shall shake his fist over the river. That's the river Euphrates. And he'll strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over Drashad. Apparently, when Jews return to the land in the last days, miracles will once again occur that will pave the way, that will allow the Jews to come back. Again, rivers will part and they'll walk through on dry land. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. 
Some see a superhighway will be built one day that allow the Jews to return to their homeland. It's interesting, as many Jews that have returned to the land, still 59% of Jews live outside of Israel. And so there's still many who will come home. Well, chapter 12 is a psalm of praise sung by the Jews who do return to their land. And in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you, though you were angry with me. Your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Yah, by the way, is a contraction for the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. I love that. In John chapter 4, Jesus met a woman by the well. The well there in Samaria. And he surprised her. He offered her water. But not the water that bubbled up from that watering hole. Jesus called the water he offered her living water. You see, the things of this world can never satisfy. Hey, try to quench a spiritual thirst with a physical object and you'll thirst again. It doesn't work. But Jesus promised her living water, water that she could drink of and she would never thirst again. Jesus promised the Samaritan, he said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus offers us an eternal supply of spiritual refreshment if we'll come and trust in him. He says, and in that day you will say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted. In the Hebrew, the phrase praise the Lord, you know what it means? Hallelujah. Yeah, that contraction again. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel. And where is he? Where is Jesus tonight? In your midst. This is where you can find him. He's always in the midst of his people. Hebrews 2 verse 12 says of Jesus, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing praise to you. Jesus is among us tonight. He sits among us. He hangs out with us. He even sings with us. He does. Were you aware of him with you tonight? Were you? As we were worshiping him? In Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus says to his disciples, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there. Where? In the midst of them. Jesus is always in the midst of his people. Jesus is always hanging out in his church. Whenever we come together, we should expect his presence among us. Well, and there we have Isaiah 10 through 12. 